Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, your audio guide to the workplace. You've heard that before. We try and be that to you each and every episode here of McLaughlin at Work, where we bring you the best of management, leadership, and employment. Sometimes we stray, but we stray with design, and that is to bring you authors and editors and spokespersons and workers in the vineyards who can reflect on what they do or what they write about or how they consult in ways to make the workplace at times more enjoyable, at times more realistic, at times more productive, and allow you to hear their voices. Their books are one thing, but we believe that this medium, the medium of the voice, is how we sell and how we promote and how we, in fact, think about ourselves. We may not like our voices when we hear them for the first time, but for other people's voices, as we hear them, it defines who they are. Funny how that works. You listen to yourself, you don't like it. You listen to somebody else, that's the only way you've ever heard them to be. Kind of a disconnect there, and that's a disconnect that we try and address here on McLaughlin at Work by allowing you to hear the real voices of authors and people in business talking to you about what they do, what they know, and how they think you can improve yourself by taking some of their advice very much to heart. And today is no exception. Wonderful young fella, Chris Steiner. $20 per gallon is his book, and we're going to get into that in a second. Interesting times that we continue to live in, that we continue to struggle through, if that's what one wants to call it. The stock market seems to be either in the headlights or in the rearview mirror, depending on what the next day will bring, what the news is out of Washington, how stimulus package is or is not performing, what's happening in the world. Nothing stands still. And perhaps when we looked back on the last year, we were thought that by July of 2009, I don't imagine that anybody would have, did predict the ongoing conditions, the status quo, the new normal as to what it would be. And yet here we are. And all we can do in looking in the rearview mirror is to say, better look ahead. Do what you can. Stay the course. The world hasn't ended. It is changing and we are changing. And change is very painful. But I think we've absorbed, we now understand that there has been a death in the economic family. A lot of deaths, frankly. But that is a condition that we simply had not been used to over the last 20 years. And now we're faced with not the keening period, not the funeral not the post-mortem. We are truly into the new era, and yet that which we would have only predicted what it will be if and when the death in the family comes just became a little murky when we projected too far forward, and now we're finding that the cloud on the horizon is the cloud we're in. Not sure where that goes, except we're still working, 
We're working to make it better. New facts come. We've shopped our closets. The world hasn't ended. It is not flat. We are still doing what we do best and learning what is of value. And to some extent, that's what Chris's $20 a gallon book is about, is finding our new selves in the new normal. What is of value, what is necessary to survive and then thrive. And that's what we do here on McLaughlin at Work. We've been with you through the tough times and as they linger and continue, we look forward to bringing you the people who are writing about where we were most recently and can project ahead with the new reality. When books were written, authors, consultants, the talking heads on television were there, like us all, in the midst of looking at that cloud on the horizon and wondering what was really in it. When you entered the fog bank, what it was going to be like. And from some, there's a certain seemingly, uh, there's a seeming clarity about what it has all become. And from others, a recognition that uh, we just, chaos theory notwithstanding, when chaos happens on a regular basis, is because that's the human condition. And particularly the capital condition. How's that for a soapbox? More from McLaughlin at work when we pick up with Chris Steiner. Here we go. Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at work, speaking today about the price of gasoline, $20 per gallon, the title of the book, the author with me here in New York, Chris Steiner, how the inevitable rise in the price of gasoline will change our lives for the better. Chris, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, interesting, interesting. I was thinking when I was looking at the book, and you are a writer for Forbes magazine in addition to or in on a full-time basis. Full-time basis. I'm a staffer at Forbes, yeah. And uh, the idea for uh, $20 a gallon, which perhaps uh, started out as the title or somebody said that will catch people's eyes, uh, came from what incident? Well, the book, not so much the title, came from last year when you know gas hit $4 or so nationally in May. And uh, I had always been interested when people would get rid of their SUVs. And I used to have an SUV. I used to drive an old Toyota 4Runner. And uh, I drove this in the late 90s and early 2000s. And I remember when gas got to $1.50. I remember when it got to 2 bucks, And I remember being a big deal to me. And I really thought people would start to change their driving habits at $2. That seemed to be like this monumental point for gas uh -huh. prices. Yep. But it wasn't. Americans largely shrugged. We got to $3 a few years ago. Again, a shrug. We got to $4 last year, and everything changed. It was clearly a tipping point, if you will, uh, psychologically for most Americans. You couldn't sell your SUV for $0.20 cents on the dollar, and you couldn't get a Prius for anything close to sticker. Uh, and so I said, well, what other tipping points are out there? You know, if the gas price keeps going up in the future, what else is going to happen? And when, as far as the price of gas goes, when will it happen? And that's the provenance of the book. That's right. The book's divided into chapters by the price of gas. So chapter $6, chapter $8, chapter $10, kind of profiling the types of things that will change a society as the price of gasoline goes and up. And you go through various industries and the like. But I, I'd like to back it up a little bit. Okay. Um, because uh, you and I are of a different uh, era. Maybe w in one day we will 
gauge what cohort we're in by what we what the sticker price on gasoline was um, when we were first concerned. And I remember being in gas lines in the late 70s, early 80s in New York. Uh, and I remember specifically when the turn of the century seemed like it was a long way away, and it was, that there was a cover story on Time that was talking about the price of a, of a, of, of a gallon, a barrel, rather, which translates into a gallon. And the Arabs weren't the Arabs that they were, but they were in a different, uh, right. they were a different mindset than, obviously, we think of them now. And, and it was really a dire prediction, so, so somewhat like your book. And then it went away. So that's, that's one point. Point two, taking us back to the early 1900s, in New York City, there was a considerable concern when the subways were being built that the number of horses, literally, in New York would choke the amount of horse provender that the horses mm -hmm. gave out would actually choke the city, so it would be just too much. So leave that as a, a second observation that things change. Okay. And a third observation is that the the we always seem to somehow um, never quite uh, factor in how people accommodate, as you just pointed out, to to real template shifts in tectonic sh That's right. shifts. Then, That's and right. So the, the the future. Interesting about your book, um, but but tell me when you were doing it, other than the value of the the price uh, per gallon. Mm. Give us give us an overall look at at what oil really means to this economy because I think people overlook that because they talk about the price of gallon of gas, but as you point out in your book, through the first few chapters, right, what oil touches in our lives? Well, it touches everything. Uh, I think obviously when people think about the price of gas, they think about the price they pay at the pump. They think about taking their wallet out, taking out their credit card, and man, I'm going to get dinged for eighty bucks here. That's what they think about. But what they don't think about is their food, their health, their house, uh, the price of the prices of other energy, their job, their work, how far their kids go to school away from their house. I mean, all of it goes back. Even the materials in our countertops. I mean, everything. If, if you're sitting at a desk and you're looking around and you look at your desk, it's probably full of laminate, glue. Your carpet's made of oil. Your paint's made of oil. The ceiling tiles are made of oil. All of it's from oil. Right. But but I want to I want to interrupt you because I, I I lost myself in my third point and, mm -hmm. and you helped me find it and that was um, as recently as this week there was some question about uh, the government putting in trading regulations right. because of oil and I remember last year when the price of oil got to I don't know was one hundred and forty three one hundred forty seven bucks um, that it turned out that surprise that was not a supply and demand issue. So how do you get, how do you factor in, as a background to your book, right. what is really driving the price of oil? Well, certainly the speculators over the last, you know, the, trade, the, the trading floors over the last two years in New York and London have affected the price of crude, be it, you know, wild swings downward or upward. I mean, we've gone 15% down over the last week or so. Uh, and, you know, that's a function of the trading floors and, and, and people. And I can't to, tell whether that's a bad or a good thing. You see, some people say it's, right, the, it's the end right. of the economy. Some I mean, people say it's a natural correction. Right. Frankly, I mean, it, if they muzzle these traders, what it'll do, it'll probably take out some of the volatility. What okay. it won't do is, is keep prices from going up long term. I mean, you know, traders have almost nothing to do with that. That is a supply and demand issue. Now, if you talk about... Uh, 
where, how many barrels of oil we produce per day in the world. We're at, we, we have flattened out and we, have, we are starting to decline. Because of, because of demand or because we're running of supply? Out. We're running, we're running out, out. Now, it's okay. going to be a slow run out. There's a lot of oil left in the ground, but we have found the big fields. You know, there are no more giant finds out there. You know, we have drilled the earth. And no more easy finds. That's right. No more oil, easy finds. The shale oil and things. Right. There's those things. But those, you know, those, uh, you need very expensive oil to get those out. My point is that here you have a very slow decline in supply, but demand isn't going away. Right now, there's a billion people on the earth that live American-style lives. By 2040. A billion out of how many? Billion. Out of, uh, out of how, I don't even, I can't tell you. Is it six billion in the world? I think it's more like seven, eight billion. Okay. So I think China has like five. No, no. They, they they're a little under two, I think. Right. Well, that's why I'm talking to a guy who's got statistics in his head. Yeah, why, yeah, else, yeah. why else do we talk to you? Well, Get all these statistics out on the table to look at the are. mega trend. Uh, so a billion here, a billion there. Exactly. <laughs> There's a billion people on the earth right now living American style lives, including us. By 2040, you're talking about three billion people living American style lives. That's a tripling. Those people aren't going away. They are waiting at the door. They are going to want oil. They're going to use oil. And you know, we can't deny them that. It's, it's a global marketplace. So you, this burgeoning demand is not going away, but supply is not getting any bigger. The price will go up. But you know, we'll also figure out ways to use less oil in everything we do. And that's what the book's about, how our lives will change. Okay. Um, it's not a book about oil statistics. Those books have been written, and they've been written well. Matthew yep. Simmons, Twilight in the Desert, you know. I didn't redo that. This is the next step in the conversation to me, how we cope. And, you know, if surprisingly, a lot of things aren't so bad. Yeah, I, I just would, it would interject that uh, Eric Spiegel, who has written a, uh, a uh, comment in the back of the book, uh, praising your book indeed, uh, he was on McLaughlin at work and talked about the coal lobby. And, and as you were talking about the trading floors, he was in the the corridors of power in Washington trying to resolve all the, the scrubbing and the cap and, and right. trade, right. Uh, those kinds of issues, which obviously are another feature of this. But we want to address the issue that is in your book. So give us some of the interesting t statistics. What What is going to change about our lives? And why, if I may ask, on the statistic of the price of oil, is, is $20 twenty dollars uh, inevitable and under what sort of scenario? Well, twenty dollars. I mean, that's twenty dollars per gallon. That's a figure that's decades away. Uh, and you know, through mitigation, through some of the things in the book, you know, maybe we never see that. But the point is that the stuff in the book, you know, the stuff in chapter ten dollars, the stuff in chapter twelve dollars, that stuff's going to happen. It's going to happen. You know, whether. You know, maybe we do some of that stuff earlier. Maybe there's government programs. And the government's a wild card. They could force people to do things earlier than the pure leverage of the price of gas can force people to do things. But, you know, looking at it in a purely economic way, uh, there's a bunch of tripping points out there, a bunch of trigger points, if you will. Okay. You know, when the airlines will begin to crumble, when places like Disney World close because people can't go. I mean, that's the bad. But the good is that our air is going to go a lot cleaner. We're going to eat more local food. There's going to be way less obesity, you know, and and we're going to be way more efficient in everything we do. Hey, congratulations, by the way, in in your book, um, in some of the language you use. I'm, I'm looking here. The next airline carcass will be that of United Airlines. I mean, you're pretty specific on how you think these guys these guys are going to go. Um, you know, 
I covered the airline yeah, Forbes for Delta and so, Northwest yeah. announced in April that they would merge. Together they will fly, and together they will fall. We like people who write like that. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, and you covered the airlines, so you have a, a, a notice of it. I've never understood, and I read, I remember specifically, I don't know how many years ago, a New Yorker article on the economics of airlines. And it was fascinating to me. I put it down. I said, it, it doesn't fly. It doesn't work. It doesn't but work. it still does. Those guys live on the edge every day. When those Explain executives, that to people. When those executives go to work at these big airlines, I mean, they must think about extinction every day of the week. They can't help it because there's a myriad factors that go into this. But the price of oil, I mean, if we got to $6 per gallon gas... You'd have half the legacies going out of business. And if we got to eight, that'd probably be it. I mean, you'd be probably left with a couple carriers left, you know, carrying the scrap, probably Southwest and JetBlue. And most of our legacy carriers would be gone. Maybe Continental would hang around. Uh, but other than that, international carriers with subsidy from governments would begin they'd, to take they'd over. hang they on, but blocked from the U.S. But market. Con like I think, I think Continental would become because they are the best run and most profitable of our of our big international airlines. They'd probably end up being the international carrier of consequence in the United States. How the mighty of I mean, seeing that Fiat is now. I mean, Fiat was. Nobody would buy a Fiat 20 right. years ago, and Continental was not in a hell of a lot better shape. No, I mean, they've uh, gone into bankruptcy. They've been in and out a million it's times. It's remarkable to hear somebody who has studied them be able to say they are the best-run airlines. So there's hope, I guess, for every entity that if it's better managed, it can survive. Yeah, I mean, you know, American and United face much bigger hurdles than Continental in a future of higher gas prices, for sure. Okay, so, so we don't fly... Because the airlines are uh, uh, unsustainable at something like six or seven. Well, you know, like I said, you're going to see. It, let's say eight in, in the in the book. It's eight dollars per gallon is, is the chapter we talk about the airlines. And basically, at that point, you're going to lose half your domestic capacity. And I didn't pull us out of uh, out of thin air. I actually talked with. Uh, I spent a lot of time working with this guy named Bon Cordell, who used to be a pilot at United Airlines. And he's a CPA, and he started a consultant company maybe 10 or 15 years ago. And that has grown into a giant business. He basically advises Wall Street on which airlines are in the most trouble. Huh, okay. So he has a lot of business. Right. And he basically, I said, hey, Vaughn, look, we had $8 gas. What happens? And he mapped it out. You know, he put the numbers together. He crunched it. And, 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 that, and that's what's in the chapter, in that particular chapter. In the chapter, uh, and I'm speaking to uh, Chris Steiner, the book, $20 per gallon, how the inevitable rise in the price of gasoline will change our lives for the better. Call your attention here, Paul McLaughlin, McLaughlin at Work, to uh, one of our sponsors here on McLaughlin at Work, which is Classroom 24-7. If you need uh, web-aided learning, for particularly for certification training, uh, you might give them a click through on the bottom of your screen. Again, Classroom 24-7. They are one of the people who uh, education is one of those elements that, uh, as we have seen, online education has certainly come into the fore recent, recently. Uh, Jack Welsh has put some money behind a, a new uh, university system that will be operating online. Uh, whether that works or not um, will be up to say. But... Uh, so you, you talked about the airlines, right. uh, Chris Steiner. Uh, the book is uh, Grand Central Publishing, and Chris is a writer for Forbes magazine um, and uh, is talking about 
in his chapters in his book about what happens at certain price points as a way of organizing the book. Airlines were eight bucks. Where do you go up? Where do you go from there? Well, you know, ten. We talk about the electric car revolution, uh, and uh, interestingly, I spent I spent time talking about UPS. This is a company that it, it takes one glance to know that it basically operates on gasoline. Without it, there's no UPS. There's no concept of UPS. It doesn't exist. But what's a, what's fascinating are the things UPS fully acknowledges this, and you know, it's it's in their mission to figure out a way to operate when prices go up. They're, I mean, I, would, I, I wouldn't go out and say that they're ready. They're not rooting for $10 gas, but they are prepared. And, you know, they're out there testing vehicles right now. In Manhattan, they have two electric trucks, fully electric, not hybrids, that they plug in every night and deliver packages with. And they look exactly the same as a normal UPS truck. Now, obviously, they're quite a bit more expensive. But they're figuring out how to use these things and how to best use them so that if the price of gas goes up and hits the point where they got to make the switch, they know how to do it. And so I spent a day working on one of these electric UPS trucks down in Soho. And uh, good for you. I that was burned out. It was fun. <laughs> it was fun. I had you the know, uniform it, and everything. We had uh, we had a guy on. I should I I I can't remember his name, and that's my fault. Uh, but he wrote a book on well-run companies, and he did a similar thing. Yeah. And he was an he was a genius at the uh, Apple Genius Bar or a greeter, uh, UPS, uh, the Container Store. But he talked about it in San Francisco about being on and soil the loyalty and you get to know your customers but he talked about the exhaustion and the burnout factor yeah. of these guys having to to make those deliveries it's it it does it looks exhausting and they never seem to stop no he i mean they work hard but it's it's hilarious i mean and like i said i did the soho route i don't know if they arranged that on purpose or what <laughs> you know so we're delivering packages to celebrities and famous artists and all this stuff all day i mean it was actually quite a thrill yeah uh but in this driver i mean he knew everybody on the route i mean they gave him hugs i mean it was really funny uh but but it was it was a great day and but it was just also great to see how functional you know this electric truck could be now it's important and, and then later on in the chapter i address of course uh cars and our own cars and how our vehicles will change but it's important to realize that electric cars it's not like we can just get rid of our gas cars throw in electric cars in our garage and go on living as we do because this could take decades to make the change over electric cars there's over 200 million vehicles on the roads of the United States right now. If we made 5 million electric cars a year, which is a giant number, considering we probably don't even make 100,000 right now, it would take 40 years to replace all those vehicles. You know, it's, it's a manufacturing problem. And, of course, there's the cost problem. They're just too darn expensive right now. The battery problem, they don't go very far, et cetera, et cetera. So people are going to take the path of least resistance. And that gets us Chapter 12. Uh, How many chapters are we talking about? Well, I have the book in front of me. It goes every two. Okay. So it's twenty. It's twenty dollars, but it's really ten chapters. Okay. Actually, right. it's less. It's nine. Uh, but uh, so that takes us to chapter twelve, and chapter twelve is all about um, the densification of America. It's about cities like Detroit, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, those great city cores, those beautiful city centers that are still there, coming back to life. The infrastructure's there. This is the positive part of your book. That's right. Look, infrastructure begets density. you got to have infrastructure to have density. And we already have infrastructure in places like that. And they will come back to life because it's a lot easier to fill Detroit back up with people who want to live in dense lives and take advantage of all the energy savings there rather than build a new city. And they are very energy efficient. Absolutely. I, mean, it was, I think it was surprising in a 
was uh, talked to Richard Florida, who had a book about um, whose uh, who's city are you as one of those, uh, and, and the energy that comes and how the arts are in cities with aggregations of people of like mind. And, that's, and that's right. That's what drives us. Uh, well, and, and that's the other thing. I mean, people, uh, I think people get mixed up as far as what makes them happy. Now, People don't want me. I love to, when authors say that. People don't want me to tell them what makes them happy. <laughs> but but it's good that you're prepared to. Right. And I'm not going to tell what, you know, different things make different people happy. But you shouldn't associate your happiness with two SUVs, a giant house, and, you know, a half acre of land. I mean, maybe that does make you happy. But, Wasn't that but a, most what, people are made happy by their friends, their family, and by vital, vital relationships with society. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, the, the passion with which you say that, has America gone through, in your opinion, a major shift from pick a date, April 15th of 2008 to, to April 15th, 2009? Have we, real, have we changed? A, have we had one of those remarkable changes as a, that a people go through that when we come out at the other side, and let's pick April 15th, 2011, do you, Chris Steiner, think we're going to be a different people? I'm not sure that we will. I mean, I'm not sure that that's far enough away. I do think we're a different people than, say, we were 40 years ago. Uh, and I think, you know, we've always been focused on material things. But I think uh, as far as, like, the kind of homes we have and the kind of stuff we have and the amount of stuff we have, it's drastically changed. I mean, the size of the American house has gone up 40% since 1978. 60% of that increase has been since 1995. And that... And that building craze basically correlated with the low price of gasoline, because you can you could build these subdivisions. Nobody cared about driving out to them, because it was almost free. And you know SUVs were very popular. I mean they're fun to drive, et cetera, et cetera. Plus the big homes. You know we live in the average American house now is twenty six hundred square feet. In the fifties it was just about half of that, and we need all the stuff to put in the, uh, into those homes too. And that's where places like Walmart come into play, and they leverage cheap labor in China. You know, you have you have uh, shelves in Walmart where the wood comes from Russia, uh, comes from Russia, gets shipped to China, built into shelves, gets put into containers, brought over here, thrown into houses in subdivisions 50 miles outside every city. That is a network that's not sustainable, and you know, at higher prices of gas, it will collapse. But it doesn't mean life's over. It just means we're going to value the stuff we have more. So you were indicating that we might value the stuff that we have more. People shop their closets now, a new phrase that they go in and find right. things that they never knew about before. And I was, I was, um, was going to mention, uh, just, just pick up on that thought and say that uh, the, it's, it's not only are the cities energy efficient, but the sizes of cities haven't changed. Um, I'm going to, uh, a topical issue, I went to J. Crew the other day. To, for a deep sale um, sale item, and I saw a shirt that was marked from $42. Obviously, it wasn't worth that, but that's what initial sale price, actual sale price, marked down to 29 and then marked down to $12.99, and finally went on the market at 20% off $12.99. And one, one looks to the issue of value, and perhaps that's among the things that you're really addressing here, that the price of gas will force us as a people to reconsider what is really of value in, in the happiness in our lives. Right. And y y that goes back to Walmart. What does Walmart really sell? Sure, they sell some food. They sell some stuff we really need. But a lot of the stuff at Walmart's junk. And, you know, they have 6,000 suppliers, 80% of whom are in China. And uh, 
7,000 trucks, semi-trucks in the United States, 4,000 stores, spreading this stuff all over the place. And it all runs on gas. And, you know, most of the things that we pick up at Walmart, we don't really need. And uh, Walmart, in their current incarnation, won't survive. In fact, that's chapter 14, is the death of Walmart. That's great. So, uh, I'd like to bring that to the attention of Charles Fishman. Do you know Charles? I don't. Uh, he writes for Fast Company and has right. wrote, wrote, wrote a book on the Walmart effect. Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. I, I'm, you know, I, I actually uh, consulted that book. Okay. On my work on Walmart. Hey, so I didn't hey. recognize his name, but I, yeah. I recognize his book. Yeah, he, he was talking about light bulbs and what GE was doing about the, uh, right. the light bulbs and, and how Walmart, among other things, got rid of the packaging around things mm -hmm. uh, that they would sell. But uh, interesting and, and that's and, you know that's actually a good thing, you know, as far as getting rid of, getting rid of packaging. Right. But uh, Walmart, um, in effect, has co-opted small town America uh, as as you know, kind of these captive customers. I mean, if you live in a town of ten thousand or so, in in the middle of say downstate Illinois or Missouri, wherever it is, you likely buy most of your stuff at Walmart. You know, your main street was wiped out, uh, and you can't blame these people for shopping at Walmart. They came into town; everything was twenty percent cheaper than it was on Main Street. What are you going to do? You're going to go to Walmart. But in the future, so, okay. So what's going to happen now? Chris well, Steiner? small towns aren't going to go away, especially the ones strategically positioned on rail lines, which will come back to life. I mean, that's how we're going to transport most of our grain and our big bulk goods. We already do a lot of that now, but it's going to become even more important as trucks become less and less uh, tenable. So uh, small towns will come back to life, but the, it's the small towns with the best infrastructure, you know, with those great old main streets and those old brick and stone buildings. Those Main Streets are going to come back to life. And it's Main Street where you're going to do your shopping because you're going to live by Main Street. You're going to walk down to Main Street. You're going to buy the stuff you need, and you're going to go back home. You're not going to drive 10 miles out to Walmart or to the next town over. You're going to, you're going to live in your small town. And if you live in a small town, you're going to work in your small town. Or you're going to choose to live there and do something. Maybe you'll be a consultant but work electronically. And what would happen to the... Um, do, Will you have an effect the big box store becomes an online and then you've got to deliver the goods? I mean, at the end of the day, somebody's got to right. get the celery from the fields of California to Chicago where they're going to eat it. Right. Well, food is Chapter 16. But, <laughs> Sorry, I didn't but, mean to jump in. That's all right. But Chapter, but chapter 14, I mean, uh, you know. I know these these big boxes, uh, you know what they call an empty Walmart? You know, they abandon stores all the time. I didn't know that. Yeah, there's there's uh there's they've abandoned more than a thousand stores across the United States, and there's 300 of them floating around right now, and you know the anti Walmart crowd floating, they call these floating around. Oh, you know, right you know they're just they're empty. They're just shells. Okay. They call them ghost boxes. Huh. And uh, I visited a ghost box in a small town in Ohio last winter, and it's just you know the parking lot's full of grass, there's graffiti all over the back of it, you know, strewn junk and all sorts of stuff I won't mention. Um, but th like I said, there's 300 of these across the country, and it used to be more. They've recently made a concerted effort to get rid of these things. There's a part of Walmart called uh, Walmart Realty, and there's that 500 people work at this thing, and their only job is to get rid of these old site, store sites. Mm. But anyway, in the future of higher gas, there's going to be ghost boxes all over the country, not only from Walmart, but from Target and other places like that. And, and, and just because I saw it mentioned in your book, and I think it always comes as a surprise, 
to to everybody when they really when they think about it. The old adage of where do the elephants go to die? Yeah, I think you mentioned something about the jet planes in some desert where they that's park. right. Uh, you know, right. Every, everybody knows it's there until everybody's heard of that. Yeah, yeah. everybody's heard yeah. of it, but they yeah. they don't focus on it unless it's sixty minutes or they pick up your book about twenty dollars per right. gallon and what it really means, and that means the runway coming in is going to get more and more crowded. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, they, it it gets uh, these. I interviewed a guy who owns a gra- an airport graveyard, so to speak. They call they call it the Boneyard out in the Mojave Desert. And uh, which is you know, in what state? California. All right. And so it, it, it's funny because you know his fortunes almost go in inverse to airlines' fortunes because he picks up more work, so to speak, when the airlines are tough on their luck and more planes are coming in because they can't keep customers in them, so they park them in the desert at his place. Sometimes they come back and get them. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just sell them to him for cents on the dollar. Then he turns around, turns them into scrap, sells the engine, sells the seats. He sells everything. Uh, so, you know, but he's anticipating more business in the future, whether that's scrap metal or turning these things around for new low-cost airlines. Who knows? Okay, so working uh, working your way price-wise through your book, you're, yeah. we're at fourteen, sixteen. Yeah, sixteen dollars. Uh, this is one of my favorite chapters. I don't know if you're allowed to say that. It sounds a little bit narcissistic to say it's my favorite chapter. Yeah, you wrote it because um, I wrote your, it. Your name on the cover, right? There's yeah. no ghostwriter here. No. So, but anyways, it, it is one of my favorite. It was one of my favorite chapters to write, and uh, I have had a lot of good comments on it. But it's it's about food, and I think Michael Pollan. Of course, with his, with, uh, with his books, has opened a lot of people's eyes yes. to uh, our food network, our food world. Uh, Things and, we hadn't thought about. Right. And this really goes, my chapter really goes to the heart of the fossil fuels at, in our food. That's the fossil fuels, you said. Fossil fuels. Right. I mean, basically, when you eat corn, you're eating oil. I mean, I think we've heard that before, but it's amazing. Uh, it's fertilizer. And fertilizer is largely made, almost all of it. Straight from natural gas. But, you know, our natural gas supplies, we found a bunch in the U.S. recently. But we still import 75% of our fertilizer. 75%. Everyone talks about our oil problem. What about our food problem? 75% of our fertilizer comes from places like Qatar, Russia, Venezuela, Mexico. So we bring this stuff in, and it gets pumped around the country. Literally, there's a pipeline that starts in Texas, goes up through the Midwest. And we spread it in our fields, and that's why we get these big, bountiful harvests every year. Now, uh, you know, as natural gas ebbs, or, and, and we need to find new sources of fertilizer, you know, how are we going to do it? And one of, there's this movement in western Iowa by a guy, and uh, his name's Steve Groon, and it's, he calls it freedom fertilizer. And basically— and, and you talk about Steve in your book. I do. Okay. And Steve, uh, Steve lives on what's called Buffalo Ridge— and it's this ridge that runs from southwest Minnesota down through Iowa. And it's one of the best places in the country for wind power, you know, because wind is always coming across the Dakotas. This ridge is a little raised up, and it whips over the ridge. The problem, of course, as we know, with wind power in general with Buffalo Ridge is that nobody lives close to this thing. You know, moving the energy from Buffalo Ridge to Minneapolis or Chicago makes it almost not worth it. But what if... We were to go back to a process that was invented in the early 1900s, and we split water molecules and made ammonia, which is what fertilizer basically is. Normally, we're stripping the hydrogen out of natural gas, but there's, of course, hydrogen in in water. And he's figured out a way, Steve Groon, to profitably make ammonia straight out of water that comes out of these 
giant um, aquifers that exist there. They're, they're not in the dire uh, situation that, say, Kansas and Nebraska are in. And they could just make America's fertilizer right there with wind power. And so you don't have to waste all that current getting it to Chicago or Minneapolis. You use all the energy right there, and you put, you put the ammonia back into the pipeline. So that's, that's one of the interesting, you know, one of the things I talk about in Chapter 16 is, is fertilizer, and I never thought fertilizer would be so fun. You know, uh, to talk about, we actually have spent the last 200 years basically exhausting different sources of fertilizer. You know, we go from one. We used to use manure, but of course, there weren't enough cows to keep up with the amount of manure we needed. And 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 they also left the streets of New York. That to too. My further point. That too. Uh, there, there was never enough manure to go around. So then we figured out that nitrogen and phosphorus get the job done. Where do we get that? So we started pillaging Pacific Islands of guano. They had thousand-year-old deposits, thousands and thousands of years, and we just dig this stuff up, put it on ships. And it's worth its weight in gold when you get back to the States. And we, we basically emptied out the Pacific of its guano supplies. And we, we actually destroyed a lot of ecosystems and, of course, islands that depended on this nutrient. It's gone. And, in fact, there was a in, war. In what, in what time frame? This is, in, this is in the 1800s. Okay. There was a war between Bolivia and Chile over guano deposits because they were worth so much money. Now, Chile won the war, and that's why Bolivia, to this day, is landlocked, because Chile took the land, took the beach, but Bolivia still to this day has a navy, even though they have no ocean access, and that's a legacy from more than 100 years ago, from the war over bird poop. Makes a good chapter. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it it's, it's fun, but you know, but just... For the everyday man, I mean, if you live in Chicago or you live in New York, you go into the grocery store now and you want to buy an apple. Basically, you're probably looking at apples from New Zealand and Washington State, maybe a couple other places. What you probably don't see at Albertsons or Safeway are apples from upstate New York, even though upstate New York's full of orchards. Or I I live in Chicago, and southwest Michigan and southeast Wisconsin are full of apple orchards. But if you want those apples, you got to go to the farm or the orchard and pick them yourself. You know, who has time to do all this stuff, even if you want to eat locally? But in the future, you're not going to get an apple from New Zealand. You're going to get an apple from upstate New York if you live in New York. You're going to get an apple from Michigan if you live in Chicago. Because right now, cheap gas enables Albertsons to get, because of, you know, conglomerates, to get an apple from New Zealand for cheaper than it is for them to figure out how to get the farmer's apple from Michigan into the store. But in the future, that's not going to be the case. And we're heading towards your last chapter. Right. Uh, we're, you know, we're talking about Chapter 18, Chapter 20 now. And Chapter 18 is all about high-speed trains. And I've had a number of people say to me, well, don't you think we'll get high-speed trains before gas is $18? And I do. I just, I just put this chapter at the end because I, I feel that high-speed trains are an expression of when we've totally mastered a world of scarce oil. That's when we'll have a nationwide network of electrified high-speed trains. When you can get on a train in downtown Chicago and get off in midtown Manhattan seven hours later, that's when we'll have this thing licked. Um, it raises a, a couple of uh, collateral questions. You know, the, the book, fascinating discussion, and that it, part of it, it's, it's, if you will, it's fun. It's intellectually interesting. It's a thought to, experiment in a yeah, lot of ways. It is. Yeah, It is. Um, particularly when we look back to the the world is ending proclamations about a variety of things. But I, but I was, um, I'm reminded of how 
in very real terms, and you, and you, I, I know you bring up the um, sushi. I have right. a look at your sushi, uh, right. sushi chapter, and um, having been in Japan and been at the market that mm-hmm. you, you quote from and see the world's fish come in and then realize how we are depleting fish sources of every kind. I mean, yes. as there are, in my lifetime, there are species that simply do not exist in New England anymore because right. they're fished out. Right. Well, that to me is a, is a is is a very real example. I mean, literally, we you and I eat fish that we would not have eaten 25 years ago because they were bottom fish. They were yeah, tilapia, trash. You know, nobody tilapia. wanted that monkfish. Right. I don't care how you dress yeah. up a monkfish. Yeah. <laughs> no, uh, you know, but they, they, the they taste the good. But chain. they were you know they were they were not you know people ate snapper back then. But so do do you do you think putting on the hat that you are allowed to wear because of your book? Um, pr- project out the, the, the happiness mode here because you've taken something that is as real to us as for some people a $1,000 Gucci handbag of which there were a lot sold in New York and now people realize it's not necessary anymore. So th- the kind of thing of $20 per gallon puts oil in a different perspective. Just uh, run us by the happiness quotient and, and doesn't that fundamentally say that as a people we've reestablished certain values i think i think that will eventually happen i mean it's amazing i think people underestimate their ability to adapt and the good news is that these changes should filter in over the course of years we're not gonna wake up tomorrow and see gas at 12 bucks that would be a disaster and that wouldn't be happy but i think people forget how happy we were before and they, you know they what do they think people weren't happy in 1900 and life's not going to be like 1900 in some ways it'll be like it but we're still all going to be connected with the internet we're still going to be able to travel you know it's it's we're just not going to have this gross uh idea of stuff and possessions that we have now and of course space too now people who have enough money will always get the space they want but you know for most of us you know 1500 square feet that's all we need can you envision you being in a city like Chicago um, and uh, me, Paul McLaughlin, here in New York City? Would you an- ever anticipate there will be a time, maybe it's addressed in your books, so I apologize for not seeing it, when cars, the ludicrousness of cars in inner cities will be banned? It's a good question. I mean, it's I personally was disappointed when they didn't you know, pass the, uh, the measure to charge drivers for entering lower manhattan right uh i mean in in fact there's a part of the book that talks about what london did and what stockholm did and how successful those measures have been in a lot of ways and i think i think you know at the lower end you're gonna start seeing this type of thing in cities because we have an infrastructure problem nobody's paying enough for the roads right now and part of that problem is because the federal gas tax is still at 18 cents it's been at 18 cents for over a decade that that tax got made, the federal gas tax was 18 cents when gas was 90 cents. Hmm. So it was 20% of every gallon of gas back then, but now it's nothing. And we don't raise it because it's political suicide. But yet, as the price of oil goes up, it gets more expensive to build roads. But as the price of oil goes up, last year we drove a billion less miles in America. So that's a giant revenue drop for our high, federal highway fund. Yet the price of oil was up, so it costs more to build the roads. So there's a big problem, and this is something, even if the price of oil stays relatively flat for the next couple of years, it's something that will be tackled in Washington that's being talked about now. There will probably be a gas tax added 
to the price of gas. Yeah, and I think you, one of the, the points that you did make in the book about the subway system and the the infrastructure of roads and bridges, that the bridges in America, the stuff built above ground, or I think you made the, the elevated in Chicago, which I'm not terribly familiar with, but it was an obvious the weather right. doing what it does. Right. I mean, you have um, to rebuild that line every 100 years. Yeah, basically. and that becomes yeah. ultimately very inefficient, notwithstanding it's taken New York you know, 10 or 12 years to move the Second Avenue subway about four blocks, but it's still, uh, it, it does raise that whole issue that if, if we could go through and maybe ask you uh, your opinion on this, um, if, if we could achieve what we did about smoking and mm-hmm. banning it in New right. York and perhaps the trans fats, but that's on a, on a lesser level. It does, it does, um, it's, it's sort of, what is that awkward phrase, the resolve of the people. If you have a, right. if the tipping point is, smoking's got to go, I don't care if you smoke. You're not going to smoke in, my, in a restaurant because it's really stupid. Do you envision that that's going to happen with America's love affair with the automobile? Well, you know, that's hard. I mean, cars will always hold a place, at least in our generation's hearts, you know, and, um, that's hard to say, but I do think there's already been a backlash against, you know, SUVs and certain types of life. This is in certain circles. Certainly, uh, it depends what kind of circle you run in as far as what how people view SUVs and gasoline in general. But I'll tell you, I was on the radio yesterday, and um, these suggestions I'm making now, I, I mean, I ran into a lot of unhappy people. In New York City? Well, they were from Long Island for the most part. <laughs> okay. Uh, but you can see, I mean, there's, there's definitely a division. I mean, I think you get different attitudes, say, in uh, Manhattan and, say, Wicker Park in Chicago than you do in Long Island or an outer suburb in Chicago. Uh, and... You know, I think I think eventually as the price of gas goes up, inevitably, during the next, you know, decade, uh, attitudes will change. I think the attitudes of city people, it, it will spread slowly. I mean, some people will swear off the city for, you know, until the day they die, and that's fine. But it's just, it's just reality. And, uh, but as I said, people underestimate their ability to adapt. And uh, we will adapt. Well, talking with Chris Steiner, and, and the subtext is... Uh, we better adapt because the price of gas is going to go to $20 and it's going to affect our lifestyles in a variety of ways. If for no other reason that we're going to have to make choices that we didn't have to make before in the land of plenty, that land of plenty is not going to exist in the same way in the land of the future in America. And Chris Steiner has brought that to our attention. The book, $20 per gallon, how the inevitable, inevitable, important word, rise in the price of gasoline will change our lives for the better always a hopeful note at the end of uh, a doom and gloom speculation here and um, chris good luck with the book and thank you very much for joining me yes thank you can you really grasp it twenty dollars a gallon like back in the old days when you couldn't imagine you'd pay more than a dollar dollar bill for a candy bar and how those days are numbered. We absorb but as and adapt. But as Chris points out, at $20 a gallon, we adapt by changing more than just pulling out a little bit more for the chocolate bar that uh, used to be a nickel, dating myself, climbed rapidly to whatever it is, wherever you are. And speaking of which, if you want to be in touch with me so that you, happy listeners to McLaughlin at Work, can be fetid with the people you'd like to hear from. Have them on the other side of the microphone speaking with me. Just let me know. 
Be in touch with me at McLaughlin at me.com. M-C-L-O-U-G-H-L-I-N at M-E dot com. For Apple Crowd, that's uh, pretty clear that I'm a mobile me customer. And that's uh, one of my emails is McLaughlin at me.com. One of the affectations of being around dot Mac, which became mobile me, is that I still have my dot Mac account. So McLaughlin at Mac.com achieves the same thing as McLaughlin at me.com. So uh, if you want to hear about or from somebody who you admire or you don't, you want to hear their opinion as coming through this particular megaphone, let me know. We'll see what we can do to get them on and uh, certainly alert you to the fact that you can hear them here on McLaughlin at work. Until then, have a good interim, and we'll be back with another episode as we are here on Web Talk Radio and other venues. McLaughlin at work, Paul McLaughlin, your host, talking to people who uh, you want to listen to. That's what it's all about. Let me know. Paul McLaughlin, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you again real soon.